I want to thank you again for joining us today as we start our new series, All In. Um, I hope that you'll take an opportunity to check out our Behind the Series uh, about this series. Uh, we're looking forward to sharing uh, this series with you as we look, about, look at what it means to be followers of Jesus who are all in. We are completely committed and devoted to what God is calling us to do and to be, not only as individuals, but as the church. And whatever role or function that we have in that church, whether it be a pastor, whether it be uh, an elder, a deacon, a Sunday school teacher, a volunteer, uh, one of the baptized, one of you who have been called uh, by God through Christ to be a servant for the sake of God's glory. We're going to be looking at several scripture passages over the next couple of weeks uh, that will help ground our thinking and our reflection uh, as we bring these messages to you. And this morning, we're going to begin with the Gospel of Matthew. So if you have your Bibles, would encourage you to go to Matthew chapter 5. And I'm going to begin reading in verse 13. It's just a few verses. So Matthew 5, 13. If you have your Bibles, would you read along with me? Jesus is speaking here. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste... How shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. May God add his blessing to the reading of this, his holy and perfect word. Amen. Now, if you are the kind of person who likes to highlight or Maybe draw a line, even if it's in pencil in your Bible. I would encourage you to do that. And I want to focus on just three words with you this morning. The word salt, the word light, and the last phrase in that passage, give glory to your Father who is in heaven. There's some other words that I'm going to point out to you as we get into this. But those are the three words that I hope uh, will be burned into your mind, onto your heart, as we see what God's Spirit will teach us uh, this morning in His Word. Over the next four weeks, we're going to journey through Scripture, and we're going to think more about our relationship with God through Christ. And today, on this first message in this series, I want to think with you about why we are called to be all in with Christ. Now, over the next few weeks, we're going to look at how that process begins, Today, we're going to look at that. What are the things that stand in the way of our being fully used for God's glory? And finally, we want to discern together what might be God's vision for His church, His people, for me and for you going forward, especially in what we hope is the second half, uh, or at least the final third of this season of pandemic, this season of uncertainty, into what our culture, 
our world and the church might look like, look like in uh, after the end, we pray, may God have grace and hear our prayers, uh, after the end of COVID. In today's scripture, we find ourselves in the midst of a famous sermon. All of you are probably aware of it. The Sermon on the Mount. Jesus has just given us the Beatitudes. You know, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the peacekeepers, for they shall be called the children of God. Sometimes that uh, passage, just prior to the text read to you this morning, is called the Ten Commandments of the New Testament. And the very next set of verses are these that I read to you this morning. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. A guy named John Stott, who is a famous English pastor and theologian, he died about 10 years ago now, and he's a writer, a pastor, a teacher, a preacher, who has had a profound impact, not only on my own faith journey, but my call as a pastor, and in my understanding of Scripture. Stott said that one of the biggest problems in the church, in the church universal, is that we have never been able to, quote, satisfactorily integrate the great commandment, love your neighbor as yourself, originally from Leviticus 19.18, and the great commission, therefore go and make disciples of all nations. That's from Matthew 28 and verse 19. Pastor Stott said that God's mission is summarized in the verses that I read to you today. You are salt. You are light. (laughs) He said that this describes everything that the church is sent to do in the world. That it embraces the church's double vocation to be the salt and the light to the world. To be the salt of the earth, to be the light of the world. I don't know about you, but that sounds like a pretty good mission statement to me, I think. But the question that I want to discuss with you this morning, or today, depending on when you're listening to us, is why? Why is that so important? You know, sometimes when we look at passages like this, we tend to have uh, uh, the, the, the tendency to view them or hear them as directives or, or commands. I mean, how many sermons haven't we heard uh, where the pastor or the preacher has said, you need to be salt, or you need to go and be the light, not recognizing that sometimes the distinction between what we are and what we should be can be pretty close, and at other times they can be light years apart from each other. I mean, for example, I'm a father. And I need to be a father to my children. Now, you understand that, and I understand that. And it's interesting that we can oftentimes understand the distinction and the difference when it comes to regular worldly roles or functions that we play in our family, among our friends, at our place of work. But when it comes to our relationship with God and Christ, that subtle distinction can sometimes breed some confusion. My call to be a father doesn't negate the fact that I am a father. If anything, this text may be the best way to hear this text, the best way to hear those sermons, is not one out of judgment uh, uh, for, for not doing it, 
but an encouragement to recognize that that is who we are. I am a father, and because I am a father, I will be a father to my children. You and I are salt. You and I are light. Therefore, we will be salt and light for the world. You know, one of the things I love about this text as we read the words of Jesus, Jesus doesn't encourage us to be the salt and light. He declares who we are, who I am. You and I are salt, and you and I are light. But why? Why has God chosen us to be salt and light? Why has God called us? Why has God declared that we are all in? And I think that's one of the distinctions that I hope that you'll pick up over this series is that in no way am I trying to say to you, you need to be all in. Rather, I am identifying what you already are as a follower of God through Christ. You and I are all in. Why? We're going to keep coming back to that. Well, number one, I believe that God wants His church, now that's you and me, to be all in because you and I, because we reflect God's image. Now that's universal. It isn't just something that Christians do. It's not that Christians are the reflection of God's image. It is something the whole human race does, that the whole human race reflects God's image. Do you remember way back in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, you might remember it from Sunday school or a Bible study that you've been to? Right near the end, on day 6, when God has created everything, and the afternoon of day 6, the text says, Then God said, Let us make humankind in our image, in our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the seas and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. The text goes on to say, So God created humankind in His own image. In the image of God, He created Him. Male and female, He created them. Not just males, Not just females, not just Christians, not just Jews, not just folks of a particular creed, not just folks of a particular race or ethnicity, not just folks of a particular origin, but all of humanity has been made in the image of God. Now now look, this is one of the most monumental ideas in human history. Humanity has a long and checkered history of differentiating one group of people over another group of people, one race over another race, one ethnicity over another ethnicity, one gender over another gender. But God reveals in His Word that every human being reflects the image of God. Now, to understand how powerful that is, to understand how monumental that statement, that perspective, that worldview is, it might be helpful to realize that this idea, this basic idea, has influenced 
the legal system of most of the nations throughout the world and certainly is the basis of much of Western civilization. You can read throughout history how it was legal to kill your children or your servants or a conquered enemy or in some cases even your spouse just because you didn't like them being around anymore. And nothing would happen to you. The, the, the law would protect you from this kind of murder, this kind of infanticide. But as Christianity has had a significant impact on Western civilization and Judaism before us, the idea that we are made in the image of God is the reason that murder is wrong. It isn't, as some might think, because I have my own right to life. That's humanism. Now, humanism has its roots in the Judeo-Christian worldview, but the reason murder is wrong is because when we strike another person, when we murder another person, we are striking the image of God. We are seeking to murder God himself, or at least the representation of God. Now, to, to, to help you get viscerally connected to this idea, let me ask some of you a question. Are you the kind of person, or do you at least know someone who might get furious when they see someone burn a flag of a nation, especially if it's the flag of our nation? Or how about when people deface a statue of a great woman or man in history? Or deface pictures or icons or statues of Jesus that has happened in many churches over these past couple of months? That kind of act offends us because it's striking at something that bears an image or an idea of a person that is important to us, that's important to our way of life. Well, that's what it means to strike another human being. That, that's what it means to murder another human being. When we do those things, when we strike someone, when we murder someone, what we are doing is we are striking out at God himself, and that is something God just simply does not tolerate. You and I are salt and light because you and I are conformed to the image of God. This is a profound privilege, a profound responsibility, and it has given to humans, to all human beings, not just Christians, but to all who God created, who God loved, and who God died for. Our being all in actually begins to conform us more to God's will and desires. You and I, and even those who struggle with, with the idea of the church or the idea of faith, it seems to be imprinted in every human being, this relentless and consistent pursuit of meaning, of truth. And how many of us wouldn't dare to admit that meaning and truth is just another way of saying our pursuit, our relentless pursuit of God. God reveals His good and perfect plan for our lives and actually for the life of every human being. And that that plan 
is beyond what we could even dream of. To, to, to sit and, and ponder and consider what it is that God has planned for your life. How many folks haven't I sat with and, they, and, and, and they've bemoaned and they've wrestled and they've struggled? What is it that God wants to do with my life? And, and, and as uncomfortable and as difficult that that might be, the truth is, is that they recognize, you recognize, and I recognize that that struggle means that we believe, we know deep within our very being that God has a plan for each one of us. But why? But why? My second point for you this morning is, is God wants His church, you and me, to be all in because we are a people of commitment. And we are a people of compassion. When we're all in, when we're obedient to God, regardless of the cost, that's the definition of commitment. In Luke chapter 12, 48, we read, Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand more. You know, I, I think we all need a hill that we're willing to die on. For me, the hill that I'm willing to die on is my family, especially my children. You know, our culture rages about child trafficking. We, we look at child trafficking and, and we, we scratch our heads and, and we, we tear our clothes and, uh, and we proclaim with boldness that we have to do something to stop the trafficking of children Y'all know what I mean when I say that too, don't you? And yet at the same time, we tolerate the sexualization of children in our dress and entertainment and too often in our own families. My wife was just telling me today that when, uh, uh, for, for those who buy clothes for their children, especially their daughters, how the style of clothing changes from a size 6 to a size 7. As the clothes begin to get skimpier and reveal more flesh. How many times haven't I heard at my own uh, family gatherings that question that irritates the daylights out of me? When they ask my, my, my 7, 8, 9, 10, 11 year old child, So, do you have a boyfriend or a girlfriend now? No! My kids do not have girlfriends and boyfriends, especially at that age. That's a hill I'm willing to die on. We try to keep a pretty tight lid on what our children watch. As a matter of fact, we got rid of cable television over, over a decade ago because we knew that we weren't always able to control it, so we just decided to get rid of it. And frankly, it wouldn't bother me too much to get rid of the TV altogether. Violence, the objectification of women and men these days, drug use, the abuse of alcohol, no, it's a hill I'm willing to die on. Sean and I love our small group here at the church that we get to be a part of. Many of the members of our small group are, are parents who have young children. And let me tell you something. It's a hill that they're willing to die on too. God has blessed each one of us with gifts, with talents, with abilities, with resources, with intelligence, with time, with relationships, with possessions. All of which God has given to us that is intended to empower our compassion out of our, out of our commitment. Now, 
Now, I, I, I included possessions in that list of resources just a moment ago. But if you and I reflect on it for just a moment, I bet we can agree that sometimes possessions can clutter our lives and not necessarily be used to further the plan that God has for us, to further our being all in with God through Christ. You know, some research has shown that people who are poor are more likely to be generous. One study even showed that mutual care, concern, and sharing tends to occur more readily, more steadily, and more consistently among the homeless than any other demographic. So I'd be careful if I were you. If you're asking God to help you be more generous, one of the ways that he might do that is is by taking all of your stuff. Years ago, I was in a conversation with a very wealthy gentleman who gave hundreds of thousands of dollars away every year from his business and from his personal uh, income for the work of the church, for the ministry, for the gospel. Over 10% of all of his income and that of his business was, was used to advance the gospel. He was an amazing individual. On one occasion, he was helping our church develop an, an investment plan with a local bank. You see, we had spent about 10 years running a surplus every year in our giving versus our expenses. And out of that surplus every year, we would take 10% of that surplus and we would use it for missions, both local and global. And then we would invest the rest of that in in stocks. And at the end of about 10 years, (laughs) we realized that we had accrued almost $1 million. So we decided it was time to deploy and invest that money for future ministry and future mission. And that's when our friendly, generous, wealthy guy comes into the story. As he was helping us negotiate with the banks that would oversee the investment of this almost $1 million, he was trying to develop the best deal he could from these banks. Except he had one caveat, one demand. You're you're not going to believe this. I, I didn't believe it when I first heard it. The bank would need to tithe back to the church 10% of the money they made on investing that million dollars. <laughs> I can see some of you shaking your heads at that already. You know what happened. Most of the banks said, no, no, we, we, we don't want to, we, we can't provide that for you. You'll have to go find someone else. Until finally, a small, smaller local bank agreed and over the years that that bank managed the funds we would receive a check from them of anywhere between three and four thousand dollars a year back as their tithe on the money they made on the investing of this million dollar fund you know what that says to me that says that that bank had been making about $40,000 a year just on that one account and that that money never dropped, never was in danger. Now, I, frankly, I, I'm not a banker, so I'm not sure if that's a good return or a bad return on, from the perspective of a bank, but I do know this, as a regular human being, a regular guy who tries to pay the bills just like all of you do, that's a pretty consistent profit every year. I asked that wealthy negotiator, that, that, that brother in Christ, about this task, tactic, and you know what he said? <laughs> 
He said, look, Pastor Ike, I'm just trying to help the bank out. That's all I'm trying to do. Because when you use what God gave you to glorify God and help others and advance the kingdom, God blesses that so that you can do more for Him next year. And then he said this, Pastor Ike, God has blessed me. God has blessed that bank with much. Here it is. And much is required of us as a result. But why? Why? Because God wants His church, you and me, to be all in because our stewardship allows the world to glorify Him. Look at verse 16 in the text that we read to you this morning from Matthew chapter 5. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works. And are you ready? And give glory to your Father who is in heaven. When we're all in, we recognize the privilege of sharing in the fulfillment of God's mission to glorify Him and to reveal to others the blessing of being a part of God's mission and giving Him glory. When we're all in, folks get to see who God is, and in so doing, they get all in. And when they're all in, other folks get to see the glory of God our Father, and even more become all in. You know what? The psalmist declares in Psalm 139, verse 13, For you were formed in the inward parts. You, the psalmist says to God, knitted me together in my mother's womb. You know, you were uniquely created. You are the daughter of God whom He loves with all of His being. You, my brother, are His Son with whom He is proud, with whom He is well pleased. When I was in seminary back in the mid-90s, my neighbor was a pastor in the Church of North India. Now, I love Indian food, and the smell of curry coming from his apartment every day was amazing to me. Now, I know that not everyone likes that, but I do. We became pretty good friends over our time at seminary, and it wasn't just because he would invite me to dinner frequently. Being a Christian in India was difficult, always has been. It's difficult even today, and especially in some places in that subcontinent nation. The predominant religion of India, as many of you know, is Hinduism, with Christianity and Islam and some Buddhists. But Hinduism is really the religion that is the majority religion in India. And if you haven't read much about Hinduism, it's a fascinating faith. As a matter of fact, I don't remember the author, but there, there, there was a book written, Why I'm a Hindu. It's a fantastic uh, uh, explanation of this very observant Hindu about why 
he is faithful to his religion. Hinduism really is more of a culture than it's a faith, although there is a faith aspect to it. And one of the things that is unique to it is that in its existence and how it maintains its influence, and some may criticize this, is because it separates people into castes. Now, I know some of you say, well, that's not legal anymore, Pastor Ike. You should know that. And that is true. It is technically illegal to separate people in India in castes. But if you ask anyone from that nation, particularly my friend with whom I just lived a few doors down, he'll tell you that then and perhaps even now it's still tolerated. In some cases, it's even encouraged, but more, more generally in rural areas of that nation. You probably know that the lowest caste in Hinduism is the Dalits, or the untouchables, and the Shudras is just above them. Those are the folks that are servants or service workers. And both of those groups of people are denied education, basic services, and in the eyes of many are just simply viewed as expendable. When Christian missionaries came to India, this message, are you ready, that they too were made in the image of God, was powerful for them. This idea that they weren't expendable, that the God of the universe loved them and died for them, was a powerful motivator for them to embrace the Christ that was proclaimed by those missionaries. Most Christians in India today come from those lower two castes. You know, I think that's kind of interesting, especially since in the early years of Christianity and the Roman Empire, it was predominantly the slaves, the servants, the people who were of low position in Roman society that made up the predominant membership of the church in those first few centuries. The things that these new Christians in India struggled with was how divided the church was. You see, they already knew the, the detriment of division. They already knew the detriment that comes from saying, we know more of the truth than that other group knows, or we're better than that other group. And so all of these divisions in the church that they had been given by European and North American missionaries, divisions that carried names like Anglicans, Methodists, Presbyterians, Congregationalists, they couldn't understand them. And these differences, they believed, had no place in the church, especially in light of Jesus' prayer in John 17, verse 21, when the Son of God made His plea to His Father just before He was arrested and crucified, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So on November 29, 1970, the Christians in North India, now with Indian-born leaders running their churches now, not, not Europeans, not North Americans, the folks in North India decided that enough was enough. And they merged all of the denominations in that northern part of the country into a church that they called the Church of North India. 
Well, when the Methodists and the World Communion of Reformed Churches and the Anglicans and even the Christian Church Disciples of Christ heard about this, they said, hey, you can't do that. That's not the way it's supposed to be done. We've never done it that way before. You know what the Christians in North India said? Watch us. And they did. And do you know that since they have come into existence, they now have over 2.2 million members. Over 2,000 plus pastors. They've built 65 hospitals, 9 nursing homes. And remember what I said earlier about education and the lower rungs of Hindu society in India? They have 564 educational institutions, and that number multiplies every single week. What's the purpose? Why? Jesus says, when you and I are all in, when we're salt, when we're light, when we shine that light before others, the world sees our good works. And they, they, they don't celebrate us. <laughs> they don't say, wow, what a wonderful congregation South Suburban Christian Church is. If they do, we're doing it wrong. They don't say, wow, what a wonderful pastor, Pastor Ike and Pastor Joe are. If they do, we're doing it wrong. They don't say, what a wonderful Christian you and I are. If they do, we're doing it wrong. Because Jesus himself says that out of the all-inness, of his church out of your all in and my all in out of our being salt and light not something that we ought to do but something that we are then the world gives glory to the father who is in heaven you know it's it's not that god can't do what god needs to do without our help God is sovereign, after all. But it's that God has chosen, through His divine will, His sovereign intellect, to say, I choose to use my body, my church, my creation, to declare the truth of His love, of His grace, of His mercy, of His justice, and of His peace. That's what it means to be all in and we've just started in this series so brothers and sisters buckle up as we go into god's word and discover the power of being all in you might have been led by the holy spirit today you might have sensed the still small voice of god you might have felt pulled by this message of grace and peace, of honor to make Jesus Christ Lord of your life, to step into the all-in that God declares is already yours. If that is the decision you're making today, will you say yes to this question? Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and, have, and will you accept Him as your Lord and Savior? If you've done that today and you're on our online church platform, will you click on that button that said that you have made a decision for Christ today? If you're watching on one of our other platforms or listening to us uh, on your podcast, would you send us an email at office at southsuburban.com and let us know so that together we can be all in. Will you pray with me?
merciful God. We thank you that we have not been confronted with a challenge to do something different today so that we might be all in. We thank you that your word has declared already who we are, that we are salt, we are light, and we are all in for your glory, that the world may know you, that we have the distinct privilege to be a part of the work you are doing, a part of this eternal truth of your love revealed through Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.